October 21, 1991. It was a Monday morning and the school bus pulled up to Steve's motel, a place where people rented bedrooms by the hour in the Akron suburb of Green. The bus was there for six-year-old Alka Patel, a first grader at Greenwood Elementary School. Her family owned the Notel Motel. They lived in a red brick Cape style house at the entrance near the intersection of Massillon and Turkey Foot Lake Roads. In the motel office across the drive, Betty, the clerk, watched as the bus pulled away without Alka and wondered if the little girl was sick. Doubly odd, Alka's father hadn't come to the office yet. Betty arrived for work at 7 a.m. and Manhart Patel always greeted her with the cash needed to start the business day. As the hour sailed past 8 a.m., Betty decided she'd better investigate. She walked to the house. The door was open. She called out for the Patels. Nobody answered. She stepped inside and saw the cash box lying on the kitchen floor, empty but for a handful of coins scattered about. Tentatively, she moved in further toward the living room. Thirty years later, detectives say trying to understand the reason for a family's annihilation led them to real-life famous gangsters and a surprising motive that in some twisted way may have had something to do with Green's transition from a township into a city. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and BeaconJournal.com. This is Unresolved, a look at the unsolved murders and disappearances from the greater Akron area. I'm Paula Schleiss, co-host of Ohio Mysteries, and helping with this ongoing series, which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Akron Beacon Journal reporter Stephanie Warsmith and my Ohio Mysteries co-host, Steve Yoder. Now, Unresolved, Episode 7, The Patel Family. Steve's Motel began beckoning motorists in 1937, when Green was still a rural township. Located south of Akron, it was ideally placed at the intersection of two active state routes, 619 and 241, and it was a perfectly respectable roadside inn. The original owners were Steve and Mary Dergala, Yugoslavian immigrants who raised eight children and lived in the brick house at the entrance to the three-acre complex. The motel was a collection of 20 independent cabins rented by the week, tiny spaces with a bed, sink, and toilet affordable to laborers who came in search of work at the area's many rubber factories. According to a history of the place by Akron Beacon Journal reporter Mark J. Price, Mary kept the cabins tidy, cooked meals for the guests, and cleaned their clothes with a scrub board over a wash tub. After World War II, ownership changed hands several times until Steve's Motel 
ended up with another proprietor named Steve. Steve Allen Kelly took over the business in the late 1950s and oversaw its conversion from a place that rented by the week to a diversion that rented by the hour. The cabins were given the names of famous gangsters like the Al Capone or the John Dillinger. When a family unwittingly pulled into the lot for an evening's rest, Steve Kelly would refer them to another establishment. If they had gone inside, they no doubt would have raised eyebrows at the red lights above the double beds, the large mirrors, or the carpeting installed on the walls of cabin number 13 for guests who requested extra soundproofing. Many of the patrons were professionals and businessmen looking for a place for some after-work hanky-panky. And Steve Kelly made no secret of what was going on inside. A sign on Route 619 used to alert motorists to the fact that they were approaching Notorious Steve's Motel. Over the years, the amenities changed. The sign at the motel once advertised its free air conditioning, then later touted its free movies, a nuanced way of calling attention to its 24-hour porn. Later, it promoted hot tubs, and in 1987, Steve Kelly gave away free bottles of champagne with each room to celebrate its 50th anniversary. When Manher and Gioti Patel purchased Steve's Motel from Steve Kelly in the late 1980s, they made their mark by putting in waterbeds and flashing disco balls. The folks who patronized Steve's Motel might have thought they were there for fun, but the motel was anything but fun for the Summit County Sheriff's Department. Being a cash business, it was a frequent target of robbers. In 1971, the night manager even shot and killed a 28-year-old bandit. The guests were even more of a problem. Deputies were called out several times a week for cases ranging from assault and kidnapping to drug dealing, overdoses, and suicides. But nothing prepared them for what they found in October of 1991. At the request of the Beacon Journal, Summit County Sheriff Detectives Scott Cottle and Larry Brown recently pulled out the file on the cold case. Here's Detective Cottle reviewing the incident report. It says here the first detective arrived there at 8.40 in the morning. Um, he observed, you know, the different bodies. And then he began, you know, the crime scene, you know, taking photos and collecting evidence and things. Did there appear to be any kind of a struggle? No. No, yeah. None. So it's a uh, adult male and adult female. They're found in like the, you get your kitchen, little dining area, and a living room. She's found like by the dining area in the kitchen, and then he's found more like by the coffee table in the living room. Uh, headshots. And then their little daughter was in her bed, uh, one shot to the head. 
Investigators determined they had been killed about 4 a.m., less than five hours before they were discovered. And the quick, simple, cold way it all went down told their trained eyes that this was a professional hit. But who and why? Detectives looked into the life of the Patels, searching for a clue. Manher was 35. Giotti was 32. They were of Indian descent and had once been part of a farming community about 200 miles north of Bombay. They immigrated to the United States 15 years earlier, settling in Chicago. Manher was a press operator at a tool and die shop, dreaming of being his own boss. He got his opportunity in 1988 when he moved his family to Green and purchased Steve's motel on a 20-year land contract with Steve Kelly. The price was nearly $600,000. The motel business seemed like a perfect fit. It was an industry already filled with Indian immigrants who could teach and support them, and the kind of business where the family could live and work together on the property. As a matter of fact, the year after the Patels bought Steve's motel, another relative bought a Springfield Township hourly motel called The Office. And after that, more family took over the similarly notorious Massillon Road Motel, a stone's throw from Steve's. By all accounts, the Patels were a quiet family who kept to themselves. And while their business certainly attracted all sorts of illicit activities, what stumped investigators was the execution-style slaying of a little girl asleep in her bed. If the motive was a robbery, why go upstairs to kill Alka? If it was a disgruntled customer, why go upstairs to kill Alka? If it was the result of a bad business deal or revenge or even rage, why go upstairs to kill Alka? They couldn't fathom why someone saw a benefit to taking her life. From the onset, there were reasons this was going to be a challenging case. For starters, the crime scene may have been a couple of rooms in a single-family house, but there was a much larger footprint that needed scoured. The sheriff called in state technicians to help search all 20 cabins for fingerprints, blood, or other clues. Also slowing things down, the Patels didn't keep a registration of guests, for obvious reasons. Still, within a week, Summit County Sheriff detectives felt confident they had tracked down everyone who had stayed at the motel that Sunday night, which was believed to be three couples. They even found the owner of a small red car that someone saw leaving the motel early Monday and were satisfied the driver was not involved. Despite the empty cash box and the scattered coins, detectives did not think the main motive was robbery. A briefcase with $2,000 in it had been left behind. And why would a thief make his plans for a Sunday, the slowest day of the week when the Patels could be expected to have the smallest amount of cash on hand? One early theory was that the Patels were killed 
by someone they knew. Speculation at that time was some people believe that it was another faction of the family and that whatever caused this relationship to go sour and turn into a homicide, the reason, because everybody said, well, why would you kill the little girl if you know, she had nothing to do with it? So the speculation was, well, that was some type of a, an Indian thing, that if you're killing the parents, you're killing everybody so that the child's not left without you know, a family and stuff. From everything we've read and been privy to over the years, it appears that no, it, it wasn't that, it was just, it was a professional hit. So who would have cause to hire a hitman? While investigators looked for answers, others were left to mourn the dead, especially little Alka, with her big brown eyes, long black hair, and ever-present smile. After their murders, Steve Kelly told reporters Alka used to play with his granddaughter. She was a beautiful little girl, petite and quiet, he said. It took her six months to get up the nerve to talk to me. And her teacher, Juanita Campbell, talked about her sweet demeanor. She was a very loving little girl who was always giving me hugs, she told reporters. When the school day ended that Monday, students were sent home with a letter notifying their parents that a classmate had died unexpectedly and counselors would be available Tuesday to answer children's questions. Being killed in an accident is one thing, Principal James Kernan said, but murder, it could affect these kids. Relatives of the Patels put together a $12,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in the case. But the reward brought in no substantial leads, a fact that convinced detectives even more that the killer was a paid assassin. Years passed with no progress, and then, in 2007, Something unexpected happened that made detectives think the case was about to break wide open. There was an organized crime figure, well known to authorities, sitting in a prison, facing federal charges, and trying to negotiate his way to the best possible outcome. He sent word to Summit County if he could get the deal he wanted, he would spill the beans about the Patel case. Now, detectives are used to cell block confessions and convicts trying to trade information for reduced sentences. But this man's name raised the eyebrows of investigators. They knew his name because it had come up within 24 hours of that triple homicide. Detective Cottle explained how it happened. So years ago, there was a detective named Dan Coveen and he worked for the city of Akron Police Department, but he was assigned to a, uh, a joint task force, which at that time it was called CENTAC. And it was uh, ran or administered throughout the sheriff's office, but all these different detectives from the county and the federal agencies were on this unit. Well, this, this guy had been 
a detective for a number of years, and he was just one of those guys that knew everybody and people would call him for stuff. He received information that this is how, why it happened, this is how it happened, this is who did it, things of that nature. A lot of that couldn't be supported enough to you know, pursue a, a criminal charge, but then when it was reinvestigated uh, several years later as a cold case, information that they received corroborated what they were told that first day. So they knew right from the get-go that it was a you know, professional hit. It was probably over a, a business deal. So first, what was the business deal? Detectives Cottle and Brown won't divulge everything because the man on the other end of the deal with the Patels, the one they think might have hired the hitman, may still be alive. They couldn't confirm it either way, and neither could we. And since they don't have enough evidence to charge him, they won't identify him for legal reasons. But they can say the business deal involved a sudden surge in the value of the nearly three-acre property beneath Steve's motel. When the Patels bought the place for $595,000, the property was still in a sleepy, unincorporated township. Within months of that sale, the townspeople decided they wanted their community to become a city. This complicated process was achieved in three steps. First, a three-square-mile section was carved out to become a village, giving it incorporating powers. That happened in April of 1988, close to the time the Patels bought Steve's Motel. Then, in January of 1991, the entire balance of the township was merged with the tiny village, creating one giant village of green. When the Patels were killed that October, there was no secret what was coming next. In Ohio, a village that reaches a population of 5,000 automatically becomes a city. And the U.S. decennial census in 1990 affirmed the enlarged village of Green exceeded that requirement. In 1992, Green became a city with great potential for new business development. And among the places highly coveted was that crossroads of State Routes 619 and 241. In just three years, the Patels had seen the appraised value of their motel skyrocket. I mean, I know what they paid for the property, and I know what they paid on it, and I know what they what it was worth. Because they bought it like in 1987 or 88, so they wouldn't have had it, you know, like three or four years. They, I think they purchased it for like 595000 And I think by the time, I'd have to verify, but I think by 91, it was already three times that over one and a half million. So it's always money. It also answered why Alka became a victim. The dealmaker couldn't afford to leave an heir behind. While detectives Cottle and Brown won't say who the dealmaker was or how he would have benefited from the surge in property value, for the very first time, they're willing to name the two men who may have carried out the hit. 
They were the names that came to the attention of Akron Detective Dan Covine in those first 24 hours back in October of 1991. Whitey Bulger and Frank Sprenz, two career criminals who had both spent time on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. Investigators believe it possible that both men were involved in the murders, but aren't sure who pulled the trigger. Maybe Whitey Bulger facilitated it and Sprenz did the deed. Or maybe they were both there. We don't know, because in the end, Frank Sprenz wouldn't talk. He teased detectives with how he knew things, including specifics about the inside of the Patel house that would prove he was there. But when he didn't get the federal deal he wanted, he clammed up. The records of both men indicated they were certainly capable of the deed. James Whitey Bulger was an East Coast crime boss who ran a gang in the Boston area. In 1994, three years after the Patel murders, he went into hiding when the feds started closing in with a slate of charges that ranged from racketeering to complicity in 19 different murders. For a time, he was second on the FBI's most wanted fugitives list, behind Osama bin Laden. He was arrested in California in 2011 at the age of 81, ultimately convicted of 11 murders, and went to a federal prison in Florida. Over the next few years, he was transferred several times till he was assigned to the U.S. Penitentiary Hazleton in West Virginia. That was 2018. He was in a wheelchair, 89 years old, and was promptly murdered by inmates within hours of his arrival. While detectives say it's stunning to think a East Coast crime boss would have anything to do with a case in Green, Ohio, the second suspect on their radar was a familiar name in Akron. Frank Sprenz started his lifelong criminal career at the age of 11, according to a profile of him by Beacon Journal reporter Bob Dyer in 2016. He wound up in juvenile court after throwing rocks at another kid in his East Akron neighborhood. His career escalated quickly. By 1958, he was on the FBI's most wanted list, having led an escape from the Summit County Jail where he was incarcerated for robbing a bar. He fashioned a key to a cell out of a piece of metal, fled with four others after throwing hot coffee on a guard, and spent a year on the lam while the FBI cast its dragnet. During that period, he used 35 aliases and countless disguises and stole 29 cars and three airplanes, something that earned him the nickname the Flying Bank Robber. In one case, he stole a plane in Scranton, PA, and flew to Vermont, crash landing on a snow-covered strip to elude authorities. In 1959, he robbed a bank in the southwestern Ohio city of Hamilton, snagging $26,000 and escaping in a stolen plane. Later that year, 
he used the money he stole to buy a secondhand Piper Cup in North Dakota and fly it to Mexico. There, he hit a cow while landing, an accident that helped U.S. authorities track him to Cozumel, and Mexican authorities sent him back home and back to prison. After nine years in federal custody, Sprenz was sent to Ohio to serve time for more charges there, and he stayed in prison until 1971. Sprenz and his wife Sandy, from Stowe, Ohio, moved to Richmond, Vermont, where they lived a quiet and unassuming life, and neighbors knew Sprenz as a friendly TB repairman. They didn't know he was still robbing banks. In 1976, he and two accomplices raided a bank near Belden Village Mall, escaped via a commercial flight out of Akron Canton Airport, then rented a plane and flew into a private landing strip in Vermont. He was caught within two weeks. After serving out his three-year sentence for that, he went back to Vermont for a time, but returned to Akron by the mid-1980s. The most serious crime was yet to come. In 1996, that was five years after the Patel murders, Sprenz was convicted of involuntary manslaughter in a case where he paid another man to scare a prostitute from whom he was extorting money. The man he hired set fire to the woman's home, killing her and a teenage girl. For his role, Sprenz earned another prison sentence, this time 25 to 50 years. He died at Ohio's Grafton Correctional Institution in 2016, one month after being denied parole. Detective Larry Brown said Sprenz is the man who wanted to cut the deal in 2007 and then changed his mind. We drove out there for nothing. He didn't want to talk. As soon as we got out there, he did, he did not want to talk anymore. Did, I'm sorry. Did he say why he didn't want to talk? What changed his mind? Apparently, he had something made up that he thought was gonna he was going to benefit from this information. Um, and when it didn't work out how he thought it was going to, whether it was time off his sentence or whatever he thought he was going to get didn't pan out, he decided not to uh, make any disclosures to us about anything. Sprenz and Bulger were good friends. Recently, an online auction house sold a letter written by Whitey Bulger to his attorney in which he wrote, Friend of mine, Frank Sprenz, a.k.a. the flying bank robber, died in prison the other day. He was just turned down for parole. My age, not many of us left. And then Bulger made this reference to Frank Sprenz, who had been in Alcatraz in 1962, when Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers made their famous escape. Sprint had quite a career, Bulger wrote. He was among the men who knew of the escape plot. Wish Frank had been with them. Detective Cottle said he was initially surprised to hear Whitey Bulger's name come up in the Patel case. It kind of gives you pause because you hear about this guy, this Whitey Bulger and all the nasty stuff he's done. And, you know, he's... He's in New York City and he's in Chicago and he's in all these big cities, you know, where you, when you hear about that kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's the big town. But then here, little green township in 1991, you would never think that somebody 
that shows up here would have any type of involvement. You know what I mean? It's just it, it just seems so weird to me that somebody of that stature within the mafia and, and uh, the organized crime would would end up you know down here. But then again, there was a time Summit County was surrounded by mob families. Youngstown, Canton, and Cleveland all had long and colorful eras marked by murders and car bombs and all sorts of vice dens, even into the 1990s. With Whitey Bulger and Frank Sprenz both gone, however, there will be no deathbed confession. No way to know for sure if detectives actually had the answer to the Patel murders while the bodies were still warm. So the answer to this case could have been from day one. Mm -hmm. How frustrating is it? It's, it sucks. Steve's motel was taken over by a family member, Ken Patel, who uprooted his family from Indianapolis, where he had been selling video inventories and water treatment systems. The establishment's reputation did not improve. Three years later, in December of 1994, Ken Patel was arrested and charged with manslaughter. He was accused of beating his clerk with a golf club for drinking on the job. David Wheel died three days later when a blood clot formed from the beating moved into his lungs. A trial resulted in a hung jury and the prosecutor declined to try the case again. It was the fifth homicide on the property. Steve's motel is gone. It lost its chief competitor, the nearby Maslin Road Motel, when it was raised in 2004 to make way for a Sheets gas station. The mayor at that time, Daniel Krogan, predicted Steve's would follow soon after, saying, the land there is getting too valuable for a 10-minute brothel. But Steve's motel held on for 15 more years. Ownership changed at least six more times. The property fell into disrepair and it was severely delinquent in its taxes. City officials intervened last year, negotiating to buy the blighted property for $190,000, a fraction of the value that someone 30 years ago might have been willing to kill for. In April of 2021, the bulldozers moved in and more than 80 years of history fell in a day. Green's communications manager, Valerie Wolford, has lived in the city for 16 years within walking distance of the motel. There's no denying it was a landmark. It was always kind of a humorous little anecdote of how we tell people to get to our house, go past Steve's motel and then make a right into that neighborhood and there you are. But not every landmark is worthy of preservation. You know, there's, there's history that deserves to be saved, and then there's histories where it's time to, to move beyond. And this was a property that it was time to move beyond. Uh, it didn't, you know, serve a need. In fact, it, it maybe, you know, fostered 
behavior that that shouldn't be and it just um it wasn't a it wasn't a good place and there's not really good history there in a single summer nature reclaimed the land where so much blood was shed not just the homicides but the untold overdoses and suicides now you can't even tell that there were structures were there you can't even see the the little path that went back is gone it's amazing how nature takes over again but it will take more than that to erase the memory of bright-eyed Alka, who was supposed to get on her school bus that crisp fall day in 1991. Yeah, it would be fabulous if they, you know, found the, the murderers, but who knows, you know, if they ever will, that poor family. The current deputy detectives said as much as they'd like to close the books on this one, it's not likely to ever have a final resolution. Detective Cottle hates saying that sort of thing because he knows someone will interpret that to mean they don't care. Like I said, there's 19 boxes of stuff, so, you know, they did everything that was humanly possible at that time to, uh, you know, to follow up on stuff. When Frank Spren seemed poised to confess back in 2007, the deputies resubmitted 20 items for DNA testing at Ohio's Bureau of Criminal Investigation. Maybe they could tie him to the scene that way. But the tests revealed nothing of use. Even though it's technically an open case, it's, it's never going to go past that. If you have information that could help on this case, please contact Detective Scott Cottle at 330-643-2131. That's it for this month's edition of Unresolved, a collaborative podcast between Ohio Mysteries and the Akron Beacon Journal. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.